The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. I invite you to turn with me in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 11 and remain standing while we read the Word of God. We're going to begin reading at verse 20 and following all the way through the end of the chapter, beginning at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought low to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The following verses are our sermon text this morning. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You may be seated. Let's pray again. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this most precious portion of your word, we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit upon us this morning. We ask, O Lord, simply this, that you would show us Jesus and that you would show us his grace for sinners. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, church history has been filled with many godly men and women. And many of them have left legacies that have been recorded for us. Uh, We can think for just a moment of some of those great biographies, some even in our own tradition. We can think, for instance, of the memoirs of McShane. We can think of the journal, the diary of David Brainerd. We can think of uh, the story, the autobiography of John Payton, the great missionary to the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands. And all of these books are tremendously profitable. They show forth life's that were lived for the sake of Jesus Christ. And yet, even as we reflect on great stories, great books, great biographies, such as the ones that I've just mentioned, 
There is one spiritual biography that looms large over every other, really, in the history of the Christian church. That is, of course, the story of St. Augustine. And that we find recorded in his great work, The Confessions. And if you've read that work, or if you're familiar with it, you may know some of the content of it. It's the story primarily of the first several decades of Augustine's life. And most of the story focuses in upon that time that he spent apart from Christ, wandering, as it were, around the Mediterranean world, seeking various uh, ways to occupy himself, whether it was in the pursuit of excellence in rhetoric or in the pursuit of learning uh, the great great philosophies of the ancient world, or, in a more base way, in the pursuit of sexual immorality. And in the work, as Augustine reflects upon his life, and really every life lived apart from Jesus Christ, he comes to a conclusion about himself and about the nature of the human heart more generally. You see, he, he reflects upon the restlessness that is seen in his life as he wanders around pursuing various things to try to seek satisfaction for himself. And he realizes at the end of all of it that he's come to the point where he understands now that there is no rest, there is no satisfaction to be found in any of the things which he has been pursuing. He diagnoses the grand problem of the human heart apart from God as being restlessness, spiritual restlessness, spiritual dissatisfaction with every pursuit and every endeavor in this world. One of the remarkable things about this book is that it so accurately dives into the depths of the human heart. What Augustine says about himself and what he says about us I think we all know deep down, don't we? We know that apart from Jesus Christ, separated from God, we are all marked by a great restlessness, a burden, a dissatisfaction with our lives and with every pursuit which we might seek to satisfy ourselves. Well, in the text that we have before us this morning, we see the answer to that great problem of humanity, don't we? We see set before us here in this text the only solution for the restless, the dissatisfied hearts of sinners. And we see it very clearly. You see, rest for the spiritually restless, for the weary souls of sinners, is only found in one place. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this text we see that that rest is founded upon three things here. It's founded first upon the revelation of Christ by the Father. We see that there in verses 25 through 26. And then as we continue, we see in verses 27, or just verse 27 rather, that it's founded on the revelation of Christ, or I'm sorry, rather, the revelation of Christ by the Father. Excuse me, the relation of Christ to the Father. I'll get it right eventually. And then third, we see at the end of our text, this most famous portion of the text in verses 28 and following, that the solution to this problem is founded upon this grand invitation of Christ to the sinners. 
And that's what we're going to see simply this morning. We're going to see first the revelation of the Son of God by the Father. Second, we're going to see the relation of the Son of God to the Father. And then third, we're going to see the invitation of Christ to sinners. Look with me, if you will, and we'll begin to consider this text at verse 25. We find there Jesus beginning this section uh, somewhat abruptly. You see this, this text says, at this time Jesus declared. Now, of course, uh, this section of the text is put in different places in different Gospels. But in our particular context here, you know, we just read the context, that Jesus is beginning this section right after he has leveled these woes, these condemnations of the cities in which he has been working most of his ministry. You see, Jesus has just got done speaking about how these great cities of the day, particularly these Israelite cities, Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, have witnessed these acts that Jesus has been doing. They've witnessed his preaching. They've witnessed his miracle working. They've witnessed his great healing. And they've seen all of these marvelous things that Jesus has been doing. And what was their response? Well, it wasn't repentance, was it? It was continued disobedience. It was continued hardness of heart. It was continued rebellion against the Lord. Jesus has just got done condemning these cities. And now as he begins our text this morning, he begins it with something of an explanation. And the explanation is needed, is it not? I mean, we we think about all the things that Christ did, and we would think to ourselves, if this was to take place in front of me, well, surely I would repent. But Jesus tells us why it is that these cities didn't respond in repentance here in verses 25 and following. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's a remarkable statement that Christ begins with here. He makes it very clear as he thanks the Father that the Father has done two things. He has first concealed Christ. He has concealed these things. He's referring there to the works that he's done in these cities, in these areas. His preaching, his teaching, all of which which was meant to demonstrate who he was and what his significance was. Well, that has been hidden. It's been concealed. And it's been concealed from those who are wise and understanding. That's the first thing we see. But the second thing is, is that the Father has also revealed these things. So for some, he has concealed them, and for others, he has revealed them. Who has he revealed them to? He's revealed them to the little children. Some explanation, I think, is in order here. What does it mean that God has concealed these things from the wise and the understanding? Well, I think it's, it's fairly obvious at this point that Jesus isn't referring to the kind of wisdom uh, that we're exhorted to get, for instance, in the book of Proverbs. He's not speaking about those who are truly wise and understanding in a spiritual sense. He's not speaking about those who begin their wisdom, as it were, with the, the fear of the Lord. That's not what he's talking about here. 
what he's talking about here is those people in his own day, and indeed in ours as well, who were marked with a false perception of their own wisdom and understanding. You see, he's speaking about a demeanor of spiritual pride here. He's speaking about the kind of person who hears about the ministry of Jesus and says, you know, I I don't really need that. I've got it all figured out already. He's speaking about the Pharisees. He's speaking about the Sadducees, those who, when they were encountered by Christ, well, it didn't make much of an impression on them because, quite frankly, they thought they were doing okay already. They were just fine without Jesus. He's speaking about those who are wise in their own eyes, those who are wise in the eyes of the world, perhaps. To these, the Father has hidden Christ. But there's good news here as well, is there not? As we continue, we see that the Father has also revealed these things. He hasn't revealed Christ. He hasn't revealed the significance of Christ to the people you might expect him to have revealed him to. Not to the wise and to the understanding. But he's revealed Christ to little children. Now he's not speaking literally of little children here, although little children are not excluded. But he's speaking again about a spiritual demeanor here. He's speaking about an attitude. He's speaking about that person who recognizes that they are dependent on someone else. Who recognizes that they need the Lord. They're not wise in their own eyes. They're not pretending that they have some understanding. No, they're they're quite sure that they need assistance. And you can think the, the illustration here of a little child is perfectly fit. I have two newborn twins in my home right now. Now, Let me tell you, they need a lot of assistance. You can ask my wife if you don't believe me. It's a perfect illustration. Left on their own, they would perish. But they know their need. That's why they cry. They know their need. And that humility, that spiritual humility is what marks those to whom God has revealed Christ in this text. Before we move on from these verses, I think it's a good moment for us to meditate a bit on which of these two categories we fit into. I wonder what you're thinking this morning as we come to a text which is famous and its great invitation to sinners to come to Christ. As you see the text before you, did, did you think to yourself, well, I'm not sure if I really need to hear this again. I kind of think I've got it under control. Did you think to yourself, well, I kind of I think I understand this Christianity thing. Maybe you feel like you've moved past text such as the one we're studying this morning. My friend, if you feel that way, I want to take a moment to remind you again of your utter dependence upon the Lord God. Friend, it is a dangerous place to be 
to not recognize that we are all in the state of a little child before our Lord. That we are all in need. We are all dependent upon God for everything. For absolutely everything. Meditating on this verse, J.C. Ryle notes that the beginning of the way to heaven is to know that you're on the way to hell. And no doubt that's what this text is speaking about. And Jesus says that, right? He, he, he openly admits, I, I didn't come for the well, for those who are in no need of a physician, for those who have fooled themselves into thinking that they don't need a savior. See, the prerequisite this morning, the prerequisite this morning for coming to the Lord Jesus Christ is to know your need of him and to exhibit this state of spiritual humility signaled by a conscious dependence upon God. But the text continues. We turn from verse 26, the Lord Uh, Jesus there praises God again, God the Father in this case. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Of course, he emphasizes here the sovereignty of God the Father in this activity. He has concealed and he has revealed. And because he has done so, he is praiseworthy. But it continues in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. At this point, we see a transition from the revelation of Christ by the Father to the relation of Christ to the Father. You see here, he focuses in upon that unique, intimate relationship of knowledge that exists between the Son and the Father. And in the context of this verse, he first emphasizes his relation to the Father as the Messiah. You note that at the very beginning. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. What is he speaking about here? Well, it, it is something of a difficult portion of the text. Commentators are somewhat divided on exactly what he means here when he says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. But no doubt, at least a portion of what he's speaking about here is the authority that he's been given. The authority that he's been given to preach and to teach and to heal and to work miracles as he's been about the work of his ministry. That mission, as it were, to do all those things has been given to him by the Father. That's what enables him to preach with the authority that the scribes and the Pharisees lack. That's what enables him to forgive men and women of their sins. This is what enables him to do all the things that his ministry is marked by. It speaks to his messianic mission. The Father has given him all things. And the reason it speaks to that, of course, is because the Son in his divine nature has a dominion over all things, does he not? So here, clearly, it's speaking about his relationship to the Father as the Messiah, as the sent Son of God on this earth. But then he moves deeper. He moves from speaking about his relation to the Father as the Messiah 
sent by the Father, just speaking about his relation to the Father and that unique divine relationship of intimacy that exists between the Father and the Son from all eternity. Look at what he says here. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. This is a profound statement. He has brought us, as it were, into the heart of the relationship which defines God himself. Our Trinitarian God. And he tells us, he tells us that there is only one who knows the Son the Father. And there's only one that knows the Father, the Son. And as he explains that to us, it becomes clear to us why it is that all those cities didn't understand who Jesus was, doesn't it? Why is it that they didn't understand? Well, because the Father had concealed who he was from them. You see, there's only one who knows the Father, or there's only one who knows the Son, And knows who he truly is. And that's the Father. And the Father must reveal the Son. If we are to understand who he is. And the reverse is true as well. The Son must reveal the Father. If we are to know him. We see that spelled out for us here, don't we? No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses... To reveal him. You see, this relationship that exists between the Father and the Son provides the basis for what is going to follow. It provides the basis for the ability of Jesus Christ to show us the way to the Father. It provides the basis for us to come to an understanding of who it is that we serve and we worship. It's only enabled by this unique relationship between the Father and the Son. And as we see that, we come to understand a few things that I think we need to meditate upon before we move on. The first thing we come to understand is Maybe obvious to everyone in this room, but I think it bears repeating, and that is that there is only one way to the Father. And this text shows us why that's the case. There is only one way to the Father. The Lord Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, does he not? And I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Well, the reason is, is because Christ is the only one who has this unique relationship with the Father. Christ is the only way to come to know the Father. This is why, for instance, as harsh as it may sound, that we cannot ever, we cannot ever under any condition, under any circumstance, grant that anyone comes to the Father outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Islam is no way to God. This is why Mormonism is no way to God. This is why the Jehovah Witnesses have no way to God. Because they all deny this fundamental aspect of the gospel. 
which is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who comes to reveal his Father. And he is the only way that you can come to know him. He's the only route to the Father. That's essential. We have to understand that. But we also have to understand that Christ is the only place where we see the Father revealed, perhaps in a more positive sense as well. There there are many Christians who I've talked to who have difficulty relating to God the Father. They'll even say this, I have a hard time thinking about God as Father. And the reason is understandable in some ways. They've had harsh They've had overbearing, they've had difficult human fathers. And now they they don't quite know what it's like or they have difficulty thinking of God as a good father. But friends, I, I want you to see what this text is saying to you. You see, it's in the Son that we learn about the Father. If you have a perception of the Father as harsh, as overbearing, As brutal and judgmental friends, you need to look at this text because in just a few moments, we're going to learn that the one who reveals the Father, who shows us what the Father is like, what is he marked with? He's marked with gentleness. He's marked with lowliness. You see, friends, it's in the Son. It's in his love for us. It's in his grace towards us. It's in his mercy. It's in his gentleness that we understand truly our Father. It's an important thing for us to understand this morning. But as the text continues, we're moving from verses 27 to verse 28 and following. We see the last point of our text. We see that the Son not only reveals the Father, we see that the, uh, rather that the Father not only reveals the Son, we see not only the explanation of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, uh, but here in verses 28 and following, we see the invitation of Christ to sinners. Listen to what Christ says, right on the heels of telling us about this relationship he has to the Father. 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, we've seen... We've seen this relationship that Christ has to the Father, which allows him to reveal the Father to us. And now we see this glorious invitation of Christ to sinners. We might think, having just read the verse we read, that this one is far above us. We can't come to him. Look at the relationship he has with God the Father. It's a relationship of intimacy. It's a relationship of knowledge. He has this communion, this fellowship with the Father. How can we come to him? How can we have fellowship with him? And yet here he bids us to come. And you know 
who he bids to come. He calls those who labor and are heavy laden. He calls those who labor and are heavy laden. No doubt, friends, that this is the same group of people who the Father revealed the Son to back in the first verses we examined. Those who labor and are heavy laden are no doubt the little children. They are those who are burdened, those who are broken, those who are being ground into the dust, as it were, as they seek to live before God. We see here that in this text, it uses this language of, of yoke. This is an interesting idea in verse 29. This, this idea of yoke in the ancient world, it, it carried with it the idea of a set of teachings. And what Jesus is saying here is, come and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You see the connection there. See, a yoke would have been a set of teachings by a master to his disciples or a group of disciples. For instance, these people may have been laboring under the yoke of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. Most likely that's the context. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, imagine if you were living under the burden of Pharisaism. Imagine if you were seeking to justify yourself before the Lord by following all the various stipulations that the the rabbis had put forth. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine how it would feel to think that if I, if I only can keep all of these commandments, I will be right with God. But if I can, if I fail at even one point, then I'm condemned. Imagine the burden that would have been. Imagine how difficult it would be to live on a condition like that. It would leave you exactly as Jesus describes here. Heavy laden. It would leave you crushed. It would leave you, ultimately, if you knew your own heart, hopeless. Hopeless. Jesus calls to those who are laboring under such burdens. He calls them to come and to find rest in him. I don't know you all. I don't know what you think about God. I don't know what you seek to do to justify yourselves before God. I hope that you all cling to the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. But friend, if you are here and you are laboring under the illusion that you can make yourself right with God, let me be very clear with you. If you seek to do so, not only will you fail, But experientially, you will be constantly worn down. You will never find satisfaction for your soul. You will never find rest. You will be in a constant state of spiritual restlessness. Because it's impossible. It's impossible to justify yourself before the Lord. But Jesus continues, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Of course, Jesus here, he's already told us that he'll give us rest. Here he tells us again that he will give us rest for our souls if we will come to him. Now, of course, he's speaking here. 
Not only about coming to him and learning his precepts. We've seen many of his precepts. We just got done not long ago with the Sermon on the Mount. And you know that if you came to the Sermon on the Mount and you tried to live in accordance with those and you tried to justify yourself before God through obeying those, you would end up in the same place. You would end up broken and restless and burdened because it's impossible. Jesus is not just speaking to us here, commanding us to come to him and to live according to a new set of laws that he's giving us, but he's coming, but he's calling us to come to him by faith and to rest upon him, the Messiah of God sent to take away the sins of God's people and to find our rest there. And from that position of rest, from that position of assurance, from that position of comfort, to live forth a life of godliness. And that's what he's calling us to here. He's calling us to come and learn from him. He's calling us to come and learn about the Father. He's just got done telling us that he's able to teach us, that he's able to reveal to us something that no one else is. He's able to bring us into that intimate, true contact with our Father in heaven. And here he comes and he calls us, come, learn, know, fellowship with the Father. He offers this to burdened and weary sinners. It's an invitation to the heavy laden. It's an invitation to learn. And last of all, as we've said already, it's an invitation to rest. He says it twice here. I will give you rest. We've been in a very busy season of life. A very busy season of life. And some of you can probably imagine that. And as I considered this text this week, I I thought to myself, what a great blessing it is when you consider just how restless just how anxious, just how difficult this life can be to have a Savior who is gentle, who is lowly, and who offers rest to sinners. Who offers rest to us. This is an abiding rest. It's a rest that never fades. It's not a rest like you take in the evening before you go back to work the next day. It's a rest that comforts the soul now and into the future. It's an assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ is able to keep you and is able to protect and watch over your soul It's a rest like no other can give. Christ offers us the abiding rest of salvation from sin, communion with him, and fellowship with the Father. As we begin to conclude, think back to Augustine's diagnosis of the human heart. He rightly points to the reality that within us all, apart from God, 
is a heart that is full of restlessness, full of dissatisfaction, a heart which is marked with anxiety, with fear, with trepidation. And Augustine rightly concludes in his great work that the only place that one can find rest in this world is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest for the weary souls of sinners is found in Christ. It's found in the revelation of Christ by the Father to the spiritually desperate and childlike. It's found in that intimate relation that the Father and the Son have together. It's found in that glorious invitation which the Son extends to sinners like you and me. This is where it's found, friends. We all need it, whether we're believers or if we're here this morning and we're not a believer. We all need this rest that Christ offers to us. We all need it. And I invite you this morning, come to Christ. Receive him by faith. Rest upon him and find the rest that he offers here that abides in the soul and that gives ultimate satisfaction to the human heart. Augustine ends his contemplation of this theme of rest uh, with a prayer. He says this. He says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What Augustine captures there is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking to communicate to us in this passage. It's what he's offering to us here. Rest in the Savior. Rest in the Lord. Come and find that rest this morning. Amen.